Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week we've got the first in a two-part set of episodes for you, all about the biopsychosocial model. Dragon Bites presenters Dr Kellen Kenny and Dr Thomas Cromarty are joined by Dr Max Davy, a consultant community paediatrician based in London. They're going to be discussing what the biopsychosocial model is and how we as trainees can start to apply it in our workplace. Anyway, let's get started. So hello everyone, um, you're joining myself and Tom. Tom Cromarty, yeah, one of the other hosts here. Um, and we are very lucky to be joined today by Max Davy from um, someone who is well known throughout the RCPCH. Um, me and Tom have been lucky enough to know him um, through various conferences that we've been to and listened to him speak. So, Borida, welcome, Croissant Max. Hello. I'm not even going to attempt the Borodar. Oh, no, I did. There you go. Uh, <laughs> I, I have been to Wales a few few times to know my limitations when it comes to the beautiful language. Um, hello, I'm Max Davies. I'm sure I'm not the sort of person that everyone will know. It's not like Camilla's come on. Um, I, uh, I'm Max Davies. I'm, uh, I work most of the time as a uh, consultant community pediatrician in Lambeth in South London. I have to say, on behalf of Evelina Community, because I keep not not I keep not mentioning my employer, <laughs> it annoys them. Um, and I'm also the um, health improvement officer for the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health. Um, and I've got a few other hats, which maybe I'll get onto. But I'm here to talk. I'm not here really to talk about I, that that stuff. I'm here to talk about something else. Yeah, lovely. Well, thanks for that. Um... So I, I've come across this uh, topic that we're going to talk about um, a couple of times, uh, and I think mostly through, um, yeah, as, as Kellen said, conferences and, and, and conversations with yourself. And I know it's something you've been practicing for a while, but this the, the biopsychosocial model or approach um, is something that we've come across. And I wonder if you might give a little introduction into how you came across it and, and how you... Uh, adjusted your practice using this this approach so I think that's how I came across it's quite an interesting question actually I mean I back in the mists of time when I was a I wasn't even called ST at that point that's how old I am um I was a SHO I was sort of approached whether I had an interest somehow somebody worked out that I was vaguely interested in, in mental health and I started uh, looking at the new mental health curriculum for paediatrics and kind of, you know, how it was all working. At that time, there was this program called um, Child in Mind, which was subsequently shut down. And that incorporate, that was a way of getting paediatricians interested in the psychosocial aspects of what they do. And the biopsychosocial model is essentially, or, or, or approach, is essentially a way of incorporating the insight that the psychosocial aspects of a child's life are important when you're thinking about how their why their symptoms came about why their symptoms or difficulties are causing problems in their life and most importantly what you can do about it and what's actually I think is really important is that this is not an attempt to kind of 
take you away from the deeply practical business of paediatrics into some airy-fairy, psychodynamic, uh, theoretical realm where we're kind of throwing ideas around. This is a deeply practical approach. And that, after a while, after I'd kind of gone past the kind of, oh, wow, there's a whole new world out there, I need to understand stuff. Actually, it's the practicality of it that's allowed it to stay with me for 15, 20 years. I mean, I've been, I've been sort of, this has been kind of in my brain for that length of time. Um, in terms of what it is, I mean, it is just, it, it is an, it's an approach. It, it's a, it's a framework to, to structure your thoughts. I think anyone who's been in medicine or pediatrics for more than five minutes realizes that there are limitations to the, 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 the conventional model of here's a list of symptoms and signs. Here's a diagnosis. Here's the management. Off we go. It's not saying that that, mon that that model doesn't have use to it, but but it doesn't give any individuality to the individual person who's there. They're just a box of symptoms and signs that you kind of work out. And it doesn't give you any opportunity to be creative around what the actual solutions for this person are going to be in their particular situation. And I think it has become more important over time um, because... Um, the nature of pathology that we're seeing in, in paediatrics is changing, has changed quite radically in this last 15 years that I've been around. Um, you know, it, there are many more um, children with whose, whose symptoms are may have a medical diagnosis, but there's, there's, there's kind of no pathology necessarily underlying that. So a lot of the chronic conditions, chronic pain conditions, there is a very ro robust diagnostic process, but there's not necessarily a pathology there. And we, we're kind of we sort of we're a little bit shady about that sometimes. Then there's all of the stuff about the neurodevelopmental conditions that I'm sort of basically do day to day. And then there's the kind of me uh, mental health crisis, which is currently overwhelming all of the all of the emergency departments. All of those aspects of pediatrics require you to think a little bit outside the box and a little bit in a different way. And that's what the biopsychosocial approach gives you is just another way of thinking about problem solving for this individual family and this individual child. And would you say that yeah. really... Oh, sorry, Tom. No, go on, Kellen. I was just going to say, uh, would you say that's probably the main difference between um, a biomedical um, so a biomedical um, model and a biopsychosocial model is the individuality, which brings it back to current paediatric practice at the moment. So much focus is on the individual itself and encouraging that individual child to be exactly who they want to be um, while um, allowing that to happen. Exactly. So I think I probably ought to go into a little bit more detail about what I actually mean by biopsychosocial. And whenever I talk about this, this approach I always have the same image in my head and, and it's very difficult to do on an audio but if, if the listeners can just visualize a table with three columns and four rows so the biopsychosocial is the columns so it doesn't throw out the biological biology remains important in this psychology is the thoughts and feelings of the the person and sometimes you can ask them sometimes you can but sometimes you have to deduce and uh, and kind of hypothesize how they might be feeling and it's important that column because it glues the rest of it together it glues the perhaps the social stuff to the actual symptoms um, so to take an example if you have an experience of domestic violence which is a very common experience unfortunately for children the feelings of fear the 
effect on the relationship to their parent and carers, well, the reason why that might then manifest itself in abdominal pain or behavioural problems or a crisis later on is because of the psychological effects, the trickle down effects, the effects on the child's feelings of safety, their their, their relationship with their, uh, you know, let's hypothesise that the, 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 um, the parent who has stayed, who was the victim of domestic violence, which is the most common situation, you know, all of those things, that's, that's, the, that's, the, psych that's the psychological column. You don't have to be a psychologist to understand feelings. I think that's the really key message there. And the and the and the one the social one is basically everything about the child that is not the child. So lots of people have subdivided the social column into 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 multiple columns, and you can do this infinitely. You can go family, school, peer group, um, wider society, media. All of these things can go into the social column. Um, and it's just that just expresses that all of these things are important when you're looking at the, ch the child's symptoms, but also as importantly, the effect of the symptoms or the medical condition on the child's life. Because if we're interested in paediatrics, if we're interested in children and making their lives better, we've got to be interested in that. That, uh, that seems to me to be obvious. So that, that's the columns. The rows are the four P's. And some people, again, some people use five and whatever but I, I i stick with my four and those those are, are predisposing so so again we've got the biology coming back in if someone's got a genetic predisposition to something then that, that can go in but also a lot of the stuff that may have happened in early childhood goes into predisposing and then there's precipitating so it may be that a a, a, a bereavement or a change of school or you know or an infection so if you're looking particularly at and we're going to get a lot of long COVID cases, aren't we, in paediatrics, or particularly in adolescence. So COVID would be the precipitating factor there. So it goes in, it, it can go into that box, but it's not the whole thing. It's not the whole picture. So that's the whole, that's the point. Um, and then you've got um, perpetuating factors. And so this is really important. So what are the things so once someone, let's take this person with, say, for example, for example, long COVID, and I might be getting into deep water here, but, you know, there's there would be a biological insult. What are the things that are keeping the symptoms going? So is it inactivity? Is it anxiety about what might be going on? Uncertainty about diagnosis? Is it a kind of secondary gain from not being in school and being at home with a parent who's vulnerable and feeling that they are protecting that parent? Is it, um, you know, is it the, the pain itself, you know, making them more inactive and or, or the discomfort themselves or the dizziness or whatever they've got, making them more inactive and therefore producing a kind of feedback loop? The, I think of the perpetuating factors as a series of vicious cycles that, that's trapping the child in the current predicament that they're in. And the fourth row, which is the one we always forget in, in, in medicine, just generally, is the protective factors. And the thing to ask there is, why are things not worse? So if you have this, this child with, you know, kind of long COVID symptoms or whatever, you know, the fact that they're still getting out of bed because they really love playing football with their friends, that's a positive biologically, that they have that strength and that, that fitness. You know, psychologically, the, the strength of their relationships, the fact that they have an uncle who picks them up and takes them to the shops on a Tuesday, little things like that, just just to kind of get the strengths out. Because ultimately, with the, 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 this approach, 
what are often is the most useful thing to do is to, to think about the predisposing and the precipitating factors because they're important and they're kind of how we got here. But then draw a line under them because a lot of the problem that families have is that they have an inkling that there are things that are in the in the past of the family or things that are in there, um, you know, that are in the family or, or that have happened that are at the root of some of these things. But they feel that if they acknowledge that they're going to be blamed for it and that therefore it's going to be their fault and it's going to be a kind of uh, dis despairing kind of, well, this has happened to you, you're broken now. So, you, you know, you, there's nothing we can do. The, the, one of the most important things you can do is to draw a line between the so it's easier when you do it visually but between the sec, the second and third row so between the, pre, the, the precipitating and the perpetuating um, situation um, perpetuating factors because the precipitating factors you can't are in the past you can't do anything about them the perpetuating factors so to take this example of, of, of a long covid case for instance um you know the perpetuating factors of anxiety inactivity um, in uncertainty, secondary gain can be addressed. The co we can't go back and take the COVID away, but we can address those things now. And so that gives you therapeutic um, uh, opportunities. And I, I say therapeutic in the broadest sense, in the OT, physio, you know, chatting, talking, understanding, all of those things are therapeutic. It's not about psychotherapy necessarily although psychotherapy is very valuable in lots of situations and the and the thing we, we always miss of course is well what are the protective factors how do we boost this how do we get you to play football more often how do we get you to have more social contact how, you know all of those sorts of things how do we boost your positivity about the things that are positive in your life and so that's the actual practical application of this in practice is is to take this particular situation and not leaving aside the biomedical model so at the same time you might have a, a, a validated diagnosis of something and that's fine and you manage that diagnosis but this gives you all of the flavor all of the um individuality of how to deal with this situation here now for this family and this child yeah i, I suppose it's it's um well, well it's it's difficult to think that you by addressing one thing and uh whether it's a you know, a biomedical aspect that you'll be able to sort everything else out. And it is, it's, it's ludicrous to think that you'd be able to change one thing and that would have an impact on everything. No, but it's almost the founding myth of medicine, isn't it? That we uh, will find one mm. problem and then we'll treat it and it will get better. And it is, it's pervasive. I mean, we all see families who want the problem sorted, who want a diagnosis so that they can move, so that they can, you know, kind of sort stuff out. And I mean, I, I tend to ride with that. The, the main thing that I get is people who want diagnosis of autism or ADHD or something similar so that everything can be sorted. And actually what they, if you dig into that, very often what they don't mean is, is actually, I mean, I think, I think if you don't examine it, there is this idea that we can just sort it out by treating a condition. But if you actually dig into people's understanding, they know that that's not the case. If you, if they actually, if you make them think about it, but what it does, what you can do is then combine a diagnostic process with a biopsychosocial process and say, well, OK, this will help. But what else is going on? What else can we do to move things forward? Um, I mean, to take the example of the sort of conditions that I diagnose, they're only ever the background to the behaviours and the emotions that are going on. And, and, and I think that's true of lots of things uh, in terms of in diagnostically that they, they form the stage rather than the actual script, as it were. Um, so, so 
I think I think it, you know I think it's a it's a myth that we tell ourselves and that we kind of um, I think we propagate to an extent to keep ourselves important. To be honest with you, <laughs> as medics, um, and uh, but if you even I I think it's rare to find a family who genuinely believe it once you've actually talked it through with them. What they want is acknowledgement that it's not their fault, acknowledgement that there's something genuinely going on, and um, a plan to move forward and so that's why you don't get rid of the biomedical model you don't throw it out because sometimes that I think throwing out the, bi- the biomedical, biomedical model sometimes for instance in mental health services if people don't get told a story about what's going on they just get like suggestions for what to move forward they go well they didn't know what was happening and then we don't really we still don't know what's happening we still don't know what's going on so so being clear about the story either through a diagnosis or through a a story and an understanding of how we got here is really vital for people to be able to move forward because otherwise they just get confused and resentful and then they go after someone else to get the diagnosis that they want so you've used long covid as a perfect example and a very topical for what the challenges yeah at the moment within pediatrics. I don't I'm not in I'm not by any means a long COVID specialist I've just been reading no, quite a lot about it. I just think it. it's a really good example and you know brings it to the now of what challenges we may be facing in the future yeah. especially given the current state from the pandemic. I was just wondering I know you do a lot with uh, chronic pain and the uh, mental health which you just discussed is there any examples that you wouldn't initially come to mind straight away that you could use this model for within pediatrics well i think i mean i think the two ones that we talk about most are are the sort of chronic pain conditions of any kind so you know we have all sorts of things like abdominal migraine always strikes me as an interesting one it's sort of it gives an idea of there's a pathology going on but do we really really know that there is do we have actual evidence that there is a pathology can we test for it it's, it's a it's a syndromic diagnosis isn't it it's, it's sort of you know you think oh, i was sounds like a donor migraine let's call it that but actually very often it's indistinguishable for from recurrent abdominal pain and, and the management of recurrent abdominal pain actually in you know kind of evidence-based guidance is essentially biopsychosocial it's essentially looking at all of the different aspects all of the different contexts that the child exists in looking at anxiety looking at all of these things but we don't do we often don't do it we sort of give them some peppermint essence or which is fine I mean, nothing wrong with peppermint essence but you know or, or we sort of say well it's just one of those things you know try and try not to stress um and that doesn't really help i mean to take to take the example of recurrent abdominal pain you know about 80 percent of children with recurrent abdominal pain have clinically significant anxiety and yet we don't talk about it in those terms. If a child comes in for their third um, ED uh, attendance with abdominal pain and no one really, you know, they've had all, they've had, they've had some scans, they've had some bloods and people don't actually think that there's a pathology going on here. We don't set, we don't talk about anxiety first up. We do all the bloods again and we kind of, you know, we kind of reassure them, try and reassure them that way because then we feel like we've been do- proper doctors. But actually, if any other condition was 80% comorbid with this presentation, we would look for it. But it's partly because we're scared of mental health in, mm. in paediatrics. Mm. We're scared of opening that Pandora's box that we don't. And and I don't think there's any justification for it beyond that, actually. Yeah, I suppose. Do you think one of the reasons why, say, you've been kind of taking this approach for 15, 20 years and other people haven't is that... Um, 
Well, I was wondering what, what you think the reasons are behind that. Is it because people are uh, think you know those those other aspects are not my job, or um, they're worried about going into that and then not being able to back it up with with support because so, they're not you're not sure what what to do. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things I don't want to be kind of say or see, seen as saying that I am better than other people because I take this approach. I think to an extent. You know, a lot, most of those last 15, 20 years I've spent in community paediatrics and it is easier to spe- to use this approach. In fact, I think it's essential to use this, but if you don't use this approach in community paediatrics, what on earth are you doing? Um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm critical of people who are in, who are in community and not using this approach, but, if, but, it, but in acute medicine, it's a different matter. And I think there's a few things. I think it's, it's, a mess, it's a messier way of going about things. And if you don't like mess, if you don't like nuance and kind of... Uh, and conversations and taking a bit more time to start with and you and you just want clean and accountable medicine that you can audit then if that's if that's what if that's what you really value about medicine it's difficult to make that jump and I I I think I did use it when I was doing acute on call but of course I was only really doing on call so um I I you know I, I don't want to kind of uh, minimize the difficulty that you have when you've got nine patients all waiting for you to be, to be reviewed and 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 you kind of have to take a biopsychosocial mm. model with all of them against so so i think so i think there's a so i think there's a perception that if we open up the can of worms we'll be there all day i don't think that's true but i think that that's something that people mm. worry about and i think there's a, a probably accurate perception that, that the initial assessment may take a bit longer if you take more of a biopsychosocial approach i think that's probably true probably it probably will take a bit longer um and i think there's also i think there's also a feeling that people expect you as a doctor particularly in acute in acute medicine to make a diagnosis give them some management and off you go to 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 say well actually i want to talk about how you're feeling and how things are at home rather than just make a diagnosis and off we go, it confounds expectations. And so that is an effort of will to, to say, well, actually, we need to talk about this as well. We, don't, we can't just talk about what diagnosis and what scans you may or may not have. So I, I understand why people haven't, I understand why there is a spectrum of how biopsychosocial people are. But I think one of the things, and one of the, the most negative um feedbacks I've had from talking about this is at a conference once when I was talking about this and someone furiously stood up and said how dare you suggest that we're not doing this already we are doing this already and I was like okay fine I'm not suggesting that people are not doing this already I think everyone is doing a bit of this already everyone nobody in nobody doesn't understand that this stuff is important I've never spoken to anyone says well this is nonsense of course we should just be you know, mechanical diagnosis machines and children are just, you know, bags of symptoms. No one thinks like that. So I'm not saying that you people don't think like that. It's just what this what this approach and this this structure gives you is a framework for putting your instinct that this stuff is important into something more of a, a substantial kind of um, problem solving machine that you can therefore add to your management which is additional, it's additional to managing whatever medical condition you think you're managing, but it, it allows you to just add, add stuff that will help this particular, in this particular situation. So it's not, 
it's not a radical departure for most people. It's a it's a it's a um, it refines existing in, intuitions and and thoughts. Yeah, because I work in in emergency at the moment, and you know I can just see you know lots of the presentations, perhaps uh, the the kind of traumatic ones, m- minor trauma or whatever. Um, I, I can see how it might not be so um so so needed but still i think you know you could even do that with even the smallest things like that and you'd you'd have some of those boxes filled out but you know lots of the abdominal pain or even you know parents coming in with unsettled you know infants or babies um oh the colic the the colicky babies does anyone actually know what colic is can anyone actually tell us what colic is but we we say it we say oh yes colic yes definitely colic nobody knows what colic actually is and i just wanted to say thank you to max tom and kellen for taking their time to record that with us that's the first part in a two-part series please tune in again next week for the second half of the episode thank you for listening to dragon bites